Thank you so much for having us here, actually. Um, and I'm really grateful that my, my family is here, and Timmy is here, and my beautiful wife is here. Um, I was telling somebody in the prayer room before that this is actually where Jackie and I met, in the foyer over there. Uh, we looked a little bit different. Um, she had short, spiky hair, kind of spiked out at the back, so it looked like she was going really fast, even if she was standing still. <laughs> it looked great, but that was the impression. And um, for, for some reason, I had shaved my head like two days before I met her, which just went to show that I had not learned yet to think about the consequences of my actions. And so I've been growing into that with every child we add to our family, and that's a good thing. Um, I have been uh, one of the pastors at, Stein, at Cover Chapel in Steinbeck for about seven years. I took over when Andrew Micklefield um, came here to do his mission, which has kind of grown and changed over time. Um, and it's been a really great experience. And I also just want to thank you for um, the gift of my relationship with Ron. Ron has been caring for me and our family for these seven years and has been there in some of the worst moments of my life and our life together and has been the grace of God to us. And I, I really don't know if I would still be here um, serving the Lord in this capacity except for his, his love and ministry to us. And so we're just really grateful. And this is a family affair. So this is a family affair. At Calvary, we're coming, we're, we're in the midst of a time of trial, and it's very similar to yours. Um, we, Ron and I, as we connect every once in a while, it seems like we would be heading to city council to talk about future building plans about the same time, either on the same day or a week within each other, which just is strange because um, churches aren't like always going to city councils asking for stuff. I don't know if you've known that. It's not like there's the city council ministry that's like, we're going to go and just make sure we've got another variance application with the city council just to keep, keep fresh, just to keep that fire alive that we're at the city council asking for things. It's, it's unusual. It's so unusual that, you know, you can go through a four-year seminary degree and never once get told how to do something at city council or how to balance the books of your church, which is a bit of an oversight, but, you know, we figure these things out. True story. I'm just sitting here going, why is that? Anyhow, um, and so we're on a journey as well, and we at our church just a few weeks ago, it seems like years ago because life is going so fast right now, um, we had this real breakthrough with the city council where they agreed to let us move from our little church and lease the old Steinbeck Credit Union building. So one of your neighbors in this neighborhood is the Steinbeck Credit Union, right? It's like, I don't know which direction it is, but it's just over there. Well, they built an even bigger building in, than that one in Steinbeck and moved into it recently, which left their smaller building empty for the last two years. But it's not small for us. It's actually like three, more than three times as big as our current building. And by a miracle of God, they want us to be in there. They want us to lease it from them. But the problem is parking, as it always tends to be, unless you're just trying to convert a farmer's field into a school, which... Uh, so God did the impossible, and the city council agreed to do something they've never done before to help us get in there. And so out of this, this experience and the stress and the anxiety about leaving, leading through this, uh, my spirit's really been provoked in the Lord. Uh, because I, I'm just so tired of being worried about how this is going to turn out. 
And I'm so provoked to just trust my gigantic God to give us the victory. Because how many miracles does he have to do before I'm going to start believing that he's got a lot more that he can accomplish? Amen? So as I was uh, praying about this, when I found out that I was coming to Gateway, uh, pretty soon after that, God just put on my heart to take us through part of the story of Joshua chapter 5. And then I found out that I think Peter spoke on Joshua recently as well, perhaps. But I want to take us through Joshua chapter 5. And I would just want to say right off the bat, this is going to be awkward. It's going to involve a uh, cosmetic surgery, widespread cosmetic surgery. That is not something you talk about at church very often. But um, the existence of YouTube proves to us that we actually don't mind hearing about weird things. We actually love it. So be blessed. A recap of the story thus far. God had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to give him children that could not be counted. And they were going to live in the land of Israel. And God started that promise by giving him a miracle child. But all he really saw was his grandchildren, and then he passed away. And during the famine, during Jacob's times, the children of Israel moved into Egypt. And they were there for 400 years, multiplying like crazy and becoming a nation. Not just a family, but a nation of families. And they eventually left Egypt under the judgments of God over Egypt because Egypt feared Israel and was using its political power to kill the children of Israel as a way to constrain their numbers for fear that at some day maybe one of their enemies would attack them, the Egyptians, and the Israelites would rebel and join their enemies and be kind of an insurrection. And so they decided they were going to use their political power to oppress the Israelites by killing their children the men and by oppressing them with slavery so that they could not grow strong and then betray them and at the right time God sent Moses out of a time of uh, being in the wilderness to be their deliverer with a staff in his hand and a beard on his face that's all he had and he went and he set God's people free through the ten judgments and brought them to the edge of the promised land but things went wrong there remember They sent in some scouts, and the scouts came back and said, Guys, the grapes in this land are huge. The problem is, so were the people. And ten of the spies persuaded the nation to not go and listen to God's plan and listen to God's promises and invade the land in confidence with him. But instead they thought, oh, our wives and our children, we're all going to die. Let's not go in. And they rebelled. So God took them for 40 years wandering around the desert, waiting for all of those soldiers to die. That's really what it was. All the fighting men, all the soldiers, all the people who decided, I'm not going to go in. Instead of getting the promised land, they got a grave in the desert. And at the right time, um, God brought them to the edge of the promised land again. Moses passed away because of his own blunder in the book of Numbers. And now Joshua is there with the commission to bring the Israelites into the promised land. 
And we have this famous chapter in Joshua chapter 1 where God commissions Joshua and says, Be strong and courageous. I'm with you wherever you go, wherever you set your foot. I've given it to you. No man will be able to stand against you. Your job is just to be in the word. You're supposed to read my book every day and know my book so you can obey my book. And as you hear my law, I, and you will have great success and I'm never going to leave you. And I assume Joshua says, okay, because things do do go fairly well for him. And he's moving into the promised land, and they pass through the river Jordan. God causes it to stop so they can all walk through, and they set up a memorial. And then something happens, which from the human perspective is the worst timing ever. Do I have a slide? I don't know if I have a slide. The title of this message is, the worst timing ever. Because this is what happens. Joshua chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Har Araloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they'd come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord." The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children who he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Father, I just thank you so much for your word. And Father, even though sometimes it can seem strange to us, this is our family history. And you told us that the things that happened beforehand were written down for our instruction. So we should not want to do evil like they did, but instead have good success. And so, Father, I pray by your grace you'd help me and you help each one of us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today through what it recorded for the people of God in days past. This is the very Word of God, and let it do its work in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk about why this is the worst timing ever, and then I want to talk about what it means to have rolled away the reproach of Egypt, because that's just bizarre. It, it, it's just It's not upfront why God is thinking these ways. And so I want to explore that. Why is this the worst timing ever? Well, Israel is about to engage in military activities, right? Swords, spears, invasions, walls falling down, jumping in, plundering, battle lines, all that stuff. And the ones who are called to do all this military fighting is the men. The men of war. They're supposed to pick up their swords and their shields. They're supposed to battle. They're supposed to invade. They're supposed to do this stuff. 
And so right when they get to the promised land where there are all these um, hostile, idol-worshipping nations who do have a chance to repent, okay? It's, it's not like they couldn't turn to the Lord because we have the story of uh, Rahab who has heard about Israel coming and instead of going, ah, let's try to kill them, she says, ah, I want to become one of them and she rescues the spies that come in and they honor her and they save her and then she becomes one of the wives of one of the great men of Israel and is included in Jesus' genealogy. So that was true for all of them. All the Canaanites could have thought, okay, so there's this God that destroyed Egypt and he's coming for us. Maybe we could make peace with him. Maybe we just don't have to stand here being being idolaters. Maybe maybe if he's bigger than their gods, maybe he's bigger than my God. Maybe he should be my God. Okay, Uh, but they didn't didn't clue in. One of them clued in. Um, There were some Gibeonites, I think they were called as well, who kind of tricked the Israelites to make a, a covenant of peace with them. But they did that out of faith. They really believed that the God of the Israelites was bigger than their God. So they said, we need to save our lives by lying. And they went and it worked. And so it looked bad for Joshua, but it's a great deal for them. This is probably one of the only times in history where people lied their way into salvation. (laughs) Read the story. It's really interesting. But sometimes unbelievers are smarter than the people of God. I don't know how it works, but sometimes it's like that. And it was in that case. Anyhow, back to the circumcising. When you have a, a... force of guys that are there to be rough and tumble and do big things like the jets on hockey night or like the bombers who I think won recently yay the last thing you want to do is perform surgery on all of them on game day in such a way that they're not even going to be able to get out of bed to do that would be the worst timing ever Amen? If you took the Jets on game day and you stabbed all of them in a place that they couldn't stand up and they didn't want to talk about it, that would be the worst timing ever. And that's exactly what God told Joshua to do to all of the fighting men. Of Israel. Here is a nation of people, the men, the women, and the children, miles away from people who, out of fear of them, want them dead, and all they can do is lie around. And that kind of surgery, where there's no anesthetics and no antibiotics, takes, takes a while to heal from, and you are vulnerable to being killed. Okay, there's a story from the book of Genesis. You might remember the story of Shechem. Shechem's this prince of the city called Shechem. And he violates one of Jacob's daughters. And the brothers are really mad. And Shechem's like, well, I want to marry her, so maybe we can intermingle. And the brothers, um, as a trick, say, we can't let our families intermingle unless all of your men are circumcised. And they think, okay, we'll get circumcised, and then we'll just inherit all of their wealth, and it'll be great. So all the men in the city get circumcised. And then those two brothers show up on, like, day three, when the pain is at its worst, and they kill all the men in the city. Two guys. Because they couldn't, they couldn't stand up to defend themselves. They're that vulnerable. And here is the entire nation of Israel with no fighting men on the eve of battle. They couldn't even stand up to defend themselves if they needed to. 
Like a hundred Canaanites could have killed the entire nation. That's the worst timing ever. One more reason this is the worst timing ever. Israel has just crossed the Jordan River. And the Jordan River at this time was so full that the only way for them to get across was by miracle. Okay, God didn't say make some boats or make a rope river or just string your donkeys together and walk on their backs, which would be fun to see. Maybe that's on YouTube somewhere. The river was so huge that nobody could pass over it. And so God gets them over it, and then he says, circumcise yourselves. If you had to circumcise everybody, you do it on the side of the river where all your enemies aren't. Right? Where you've got a big raging river as a physical barrier keeping the people who want you dead away from you. You don't go over the river and then shoot yourselves in the foot, proverbially speaking. And that is literally, in the history of warfare, rivers make or break armies. You can hide behind a river, but if the army comes at you when you're stuck in the middle of the river, you're dead. And if you are in a place where you've got a river at your back and the enemy comes, you've got nowhere to run. You've got nowhere to run. You've got nowhere to run. You, you just run into the river and then you drowned. It's either death by sword or death by water. You're dead. So literally, this is the worst military mistake in history. It's the worst timing ever. To take your army where it cannot get away from the enemy and make them so weak and vulnerable that they couldn't stop anybody if they needed to. It's the worst timing ever. Are you convinced yet? I I don't believe it. I don't believe it. So I got one more thing here that makes this the worst timing ever. We know from the story that God is dealing with a problem that has been there for 40 years. Amen? Because for some reason, they were circumcising their kids in Israel, but when they got out in the desert, and then the bad thing happened with not going to the promised land, I think they got discouraged, and they stopped circumcising their kids. They just stopped doing it. So for the entire ministry of Moses, God is watching all these children who are going to be the warriors not getting circumcised, and he says zilch about it. This much. And Moses and God talk every day. They've got this tent of meeting where Moses goes there and he has conversations with God, like about the weather. And it's not prophetic where it's pictures or kind of parables and weird things. They just talk face to face like brothers. It's one of the most unique experiences in human history. And all those 40 years, God never says, so what's the deal with the no circumcising? He waits. Doesn't say anything. Until they're over the river. And they can see Jericho. Like right there. He says, you know what guys? Something's been bugging me. Can we talk? I don't know if we're in fellowship. Remember Abraham? The covenant, circumcision, people of God thing. Have you been keeping up with that? Nope. I see you kind of kicking the dirt. You're a little quiet. Are you mumbling? God waited 40 years to bring this up. And when he brought it up, it was on the other side of the river with the enemy right there. 
This is literally from the human perspective. I think God wants to make a point. Amen. So let's talk about Gilgal. The Hebrews have this great way of remembering their history by naming places. And uh, Gilgal just means to roll away. It sounds like the Hebrew word for, for rolling. And when all of this is accomplished, now this is a great moment in the history of God's people because they obeyed. Right? They'd be there thinking, so the enemy's right there and you want me to what? Joshua, you want me to say what? Is that going to hurt? God says, make all these flint knives. And so I th- as I thought about it, you know, flint is just a sharp piece of rock, right? And if you need to do 200,000 circumcisions in a couple of days, you don't just have one person running around with a scalpel. Like, every family needs a rock. And so I, they just made a bunch of these rock knives. Uh, that's how I understand it. I'm, that's how I'm figuring it out. But it sounds like a really bad idea, but they, they obeyed. This is one of the miracles of the, the people of God. They obeyed. It's amazing. It really is amazing. They obeyed. And this is kind of like the story. Like, God told us to do something that is the worst timing ever. We're going to do it. Okay, sure, good. Yeah, let's do it. And they did it. And they, they're waiting to be healed, and they're healed. And when they were healed, and when, it, when it's all done... And they didn't get attacked, and they didn't get evaded, invaded, and they didn't get destroyed. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. What in the world does that mean? If you were there, you could be thinking, what? what? Because it's been 40 years since any of us were even near Egypt. And most of the generation, except for Joshua, because he was one of the faithful spies along with Caleb, so they got the blessing of long life so that they could go through this and they could be heroes in the invasion. Except for Joshua, most of the people who lived in Egypt and were slaves in Egypt are dead. What in the world could it mean that God is accomplishing, rolling away the reproach of Egypt... Through this circumcision event. This is one of those moments where people like give up on scripture. This doesn't make any sense. I just want to say one thing, okay? If you went to another country and you met somebody there who's just always looking at this other culture, wherever it is, Middle East, somewhere else, and they're just like, oh, these people are so dumb. These people are so stupid. Look at their dumb ways. Look at their stupid things. Look at You just think, you sound a little arrogant. We call it ethnocentric, where you just evaluate everything by your your experience of life and your country and your culture. You you sound a little pride. When we read the Bible, we are literally traveling back in time, thousands of years, to another place in the world, and we should really come with a humble spirit and not assume that we know best and these guys are weirdos but maybe they're smarter than us and we've got something to learn amen yeah. Yeah. we actually really do need to do that like humility goes just because I'm a 21st century Canadian doesn't mean I'm the best kind of person ever well it's true for me I don't know if it's true for you there's some wonderful people here 
What is going on here? This is what I think, and you do kind of need to read scripture and come to your own conclusion about this because I don't think scripture hits anybody over the head with a full explanation of what God's thoughts are here. But this is what I'm thinking. Um, when God took the people of Israel out of, that, of Egypt, it was a lot easier for him to get them out of physical Egypt than to get Egypt out of them. Okay? It's a lot easier for him to just destroy an army at the Red Sea so that they could leave than it is to get his people to stop thinking like the Egyptians thought and feeling like the Egyptians felt and doing like the Egyptians did. And you can kind of see that. Not too long they're in the desert and they are being led by a pillar of fire which represents the presence of God with them. But they run out of food. And they're all like, man, I wish we were back in Egypt. I could have some leeks. Give me some onions. All I got is this miracle manna. They were out of Egypt, but this desire to evaluate life by how they were eating was still in their hearts and it was coming out. Egypt was coming out of their heart. And they got to the promised land after watching God destroy the superpower of the age. Egypt was the greatest nation on the planet and God took it out with a stick and an old man. Two things that we don't necessarily think highly of in our culture. He took the whole nation out. And so they were like, please leave before it gets any worse. And then the best of the best of uh, Pharaoh's army, the charioteers, which was like the nuclear-powered tanks of the day. There's no such thing as nuclear-powered tank. But if there were, it would be awesome. He's like the nuclear-powered tanks of the day chasing after Israel. God's like, how about I just leave you at the bottom of a sea that I'm parting miraculously? And let everybody watch so they can see. Because in Egypt, might makes right. Right? In Egypt... Death is power. That's why all those babies were at the bottom of the sea. And so they come to the edge of the promised land and they see these giants and Egypt comes out of their hearts. We can't win. They're bigger than us. Even though they had just seen Egypt destroyed and seen Pharaoh's horses floating dead in the Red Sea, we can't win. These, these are giants. They're big. They're bigger. They're like the Shaquille O'Neal's. They're, they're all Shaq. They're all they have. They're, they're shoe size. 35. 35 shoe size. We can't win. And Egypt came out of their heart. And God wanted to deal with the shame of the people of God having Egypt come out of their heart when he's already brought Egypt, them out of Egypt. Does that make sense? Because it's, it's, it's shameful. It's a reproach to act like you're an Egyptian. And this is a long time ago. I'm not saying anything about modern Egypt. But to act like you're an Egyptian when you've been rescued from Egypt is shameful. That's what God's saying. And the people of God forgot when they were looking at these giants that they had the biggest giant on their side. That's the craziest thing. They've got giants, like nine foot tall giants, and they forgot, my, their God was the biggest giant. He's the biggest giant. 
He's the biggest giant. Our God is the thing that people should be worried about. He's the biggest giant. They forgot about him because of Egypt. And so God wants, wanted to take that away from them. And so he called them into the worst timing ever. You guys think Mike makes right? You think power, physical power is where it's at? I'm going to put you in a position where you have no might. You have all weakness. And you don't want to talk about it. And I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. And then as you obey me in your weakness, I'm going to lead you into the victory. And by walking you through that, I'm going to take off of you the reproach of Egypt. Because you won't be thinking like an Egyptian anymore. When you say yes to the weakness, when you say yes to the pain, when you say yes to the vulnerability with your eyes fixed on your giant who protects you and provides for you and goes before you, and you do not fear the strength of man, then the reproach of Egypt is taken away. Does that make sense? I think that's what's going on there. Well, we're all good Christians, and so we don't need to apply any of this to our lives because we don't have any Egypt running around in our hearts at all. Amen? Which means I get to end five minutes and 50, 49, 48, 47. Is it going to just keep counting down the whole time? What? I get to end early and we all get to go home. No, just kidding. In this story, though, and sometimes we're called to be Joshua's, um, for us, we have a Joshua. His name is Jesus. And the trick is knowing that it's actually the same name. When Joshua was growing up, his mom called him Yeshua. And when Jesus was growing up, his mom called him Yeshua. It's the same name, but one is kind of more Hebrew, and one went through Greek and Latin, and so it just is a little bit different for us in English. But it is the same name. And both Joshua's had the same mission, have the same mission. Okay, Joshua's mission was to take the people into the promised land and displace unbelief and displace idolatry and to make it a better place where God's presence is and he is known and worshipped or where people can come and meet with the living God. And Jesus' mission is actually the same thing. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes this about Christ. It says, Then comes the end speaking of the end of time, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, meaning Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For, quoting scripture, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he's accepting him who put all things under him, which is just Paul being really a stickler for teaching. When all things are subjected to him, Christ, then the Son himself will be subjected to God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Rob, what are you talking about? This is what scripture is saying. 
Our Joshua is the same kind of person. He invaded the planet by being born of the Virgin Mary. And he invaded Israel by being baptized in the River Jordan. And then going into the wilderness to defeat the devil. And then coming into Jerusalem to be crowned king by going onto a cross. And having a crown of thorn placed on his head. And to go down into death. And to be king there by coming out of it into the world again. Where he is king. And then ascending into heaven where he is king. And now he is on an invasion force throughout the entire world. To bring everything under subjection to him so that he can return it back to God the Father who it belongs to but was robbed of it by what happened in the garden. This is his mission. To move the people of God forward to displace unbelief and displace rebellion and to make places where God is known and worshipped and his presence is appreciated in the entire world. He is an invader. The same mission according to Paul. He is going to crush every rule Crush all authority and then give it back to the true authority, which is his dad. And who are we in this story? We're the Israelites. And we're called to embrace the weakness, the vulnerability that Christ calls us into as a way of having Egypt or Canada taken out of our hearts so that our eyes can be completely on God so that he can go before us and be our gigantic giant who destroys all things before us in ways that we never could. Because we're not trying to live like Canadians anymore. We're living like the people of God following the pillar of fire, following the Joshua of God in his world. Two minutes left. How much do you think I can say before it's all over? (laughs) This is the biggest thing I want to work on today. In Canada, the God of the age is a message that you are the God of this age. The, the God of this age that Christ is going to destroy and displace, not might. The, the question about whether or not Jesus is going to win was answered when he came out of the grave. What more could we do to him? He's already died. So the God of the age that Christ will displace is this message, you are the God of this age. And you can see it in our culture and where it's going, okay? So the last few years we've been dominated by this push for lots of things that have all to do about you being God. The, The forcing of life and death power that every mother must have to the point where this year you couldn't even get federal funding for a student job grant unless you bow down. Say, it is a good and holy thing to kill in the womb. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be, have a body? What does it mean to be a woman or a man? You decide. You decide because you're God. Even to the point of if you don't want to have a title on your basic identification, you can just put X now. Because you, you're God and you decide. What is death? What does it mean? When should we die? How much is too much? You decide. If you need someone to help kill you, a doctor will do that now. Because you're God. And you get to decide about life and death and what it means to be human and everything in between. How much chemicals is the right amount of chemicals to have in your brain? You decide. You can order it online now. How much reality is enough reality? You decide. Because you're God. And when we believe that and live like that, that's, that's Canada in our hearts. And God is going to continue to take us through moments where we are called to incredible weakness. So that we will learn, I'm not God. I'm not God. 
I'm not God. God is God. And I'm going to turn away from trying to be God, to try to decide, to try to take care of myself, to try to accomplish things with the things we use to accomplish things like mobs and Facebook virals. Like when did having a viral thing happen become a good thing? I got a virus. Yay! Well, no. So I'm, I'm a little over time. I want to be gracious. But this is, this is the call for each one of us. As a church, as you're working and waiting for God's final victory, all of the worst timing ever that happened to us, the bad things ever, every time the question underneath is, will you let God circumcise off of you an insistence of trying to be God yourself and take care of yourself and decide for yourself? Or will we humble ourselves and say, My God is the only God. My God is the great God. My God is the giant over every giant. And he is leading me into the promised land. So the answer is yes. And may the Lord give us the grace to keep saying yes every time. Amen.